Hello, you're listening to Red Flag Radio. My name is Liam Ward. I'm the producer of the show. Our usual host, Ros Ward, isn't here today because this one's just a sort of off-the-cuff uh, special edition uh, that I've decided to record uh, myself. We are joined today uh, by a very special guest, Charles Ungpokorn, uh, an exiled Thai revolutionary socialist uh, who's uh, been living in exile uh, in, in, since the years following the 2006 coup uh, in that country. And uh, given the explosion of um, amazing protests that's you know shaken the country in, in the last few weeks and months, uh, we here at Red Flag Radio thought it would be a useful moment to just grab uh, a few minutes of Giles's time uh, to explain what's happening in Thailand, the significance of it, how it fits into uh, both, I guess, the history of the pro-democracy struggle in Thailand, but also the broader wave of, of global rebellion that we've seen across the country in the last you know two years or so. Uh, so, yes, thanks again, Giles, for coming and talking to us today. You're welcome. Uh, I wanted to start by... Well, just noting that I don't know what it's like where you are in Britain, but here in Australia, it can be almost impossible to really get an accurate sense of what's actually happening with the resurgent protests in Thailand, um, the scale of it, the significance of it, uh, and so on. So I wonder if you could just give us, you know, start by giving us a general overview uh, of what's been happening in the last few weeks and months and, and why it matters. Well, there's been a massive upsurge in um protests, it's regenerated the pro-democracy movement and it's um, students and young people who have led that resurgence and they're pulling in behind them um, older people, former activists from the red shirt movement and they're, um, and it's spread to the schools and, and secondary um, school level students. Um, Basically, um, the government is still a military dictatorship, although they um, held fake elections last year and then fixed to make sure that they're still in, in power. And they drafted, they wrote the constitution to ensure that that happens as well. And um, there have been sporadic um, protests. There were protests when General Bayut state of mili the military coup in 2014. Um, but um, in the past, the, the protests have fizzled out. They've been small. Um, they haven't managed to, to spread to, to other areas. But um, suddenly, after the COVID lockdown and the economic effects of this, um, young people have become more and more angry and frustrated. And the, the significance of, of the young people is that they are not, they don't have the wounds, the fears that the older activists have from being um, suppressed with violence by the military. And um, so there are a whole number of issues which have, have resulted in young people coming out. There's, closest to, to their own lives as the issue of the conservative nature of the 
education system, especially in schools, and and they're very angry about that and frustrated because they use social media and they can see that the world has, has changed. But then there's the way that the government has used COVID in order to suppress um, protests or to try and suppress them, um, claiming that the protests are against the the um, the quarantine rules and so on. Um, there's also the fact that um, the opposition parties that took part in the sham election, um, the main main one, most radical, although not radical enough, um, was um, abolished um, by the by the military um, appointed courts. Um, the head of that party was was debarred from being a, a, a member of parliament. And it's become quite obvious that um, reforms of the system through parliamentary means um, doesn't work. And added to all that, um, dissidents who are um, living in neighbouring countries, Cambodia, Laos, um, they have been executed by military um, hit squads. So all these factors and the fact that people are, are still being um, intimidated by the security forces. I mean, the, the soldiers just pay visits to people in their houses and, and so on. All these factors have led to, to, to people feeling frustrated and angry. And although it's the young people who have the uh, courage to do it, um, to protest, actually half the population, probably more, share that frustration. Um, because they voted against the military um, party and so on. So the, there is there is tremendous support for, for the young people. Mm -hmm. And the, the high point of it was the protest out around the Democracy Monument on the 16th of August, when I would say up to um, 50,000 people turned out um, and um, protested. It's the biggest protest for a long time. Mm -hmm. In fact, the biggest protest since the red shirt protest. And, the, and that was on a Friday. On the Monday following that, you had the scene of um, school students um, raising the, the three-finger three salute borrowed from Hunger Games. It's now a, um, a, a salute against the, the military dictatorship. You had them doing this in their schools during the compulsory flag raising ceremony and you you could see them arguing with teachers and and so on and and at the forefront of this school student protests were were young women mm. and a few days later they went to the ministry of education and um the minister the junta appointed minister was howled down when he tried to to address the students with chance of you know, um, lackey of the dictatorship. Mm. So you can see the the, the level of um, militancy and, and and the developing movement. And another indication of this is the demands by some of the by a section of the protesters to um, reform the monarchy. Um, people speaking from stages openly criticizing the present king and so on. Mm.
But the, the key demands of the movement at the moment are to stop intimidating activists, to um, rewrite the constitution and for a parliament to be um, closed so that um, fresh elections can take place. Mm. It's really quite startling scenes. I, I saw those those scenes you referred to of the high school students and it's just, I think it's worth reiterating that. Uh, I don't know if this is if this is a regular occurrence of protests in Thailand, but the idea that they would be heckling the education minister, you know, and calling him a lackey of the dictatorship and so on. I mean, this is, yeah, sort of incendiary scenes and uh, really uh, spine tingling to, to watch that unfold. And I know my social media has been full of uh, uh, those sorts of scenes and also um, things like LGBT activists joining the movement in contingents and quite large protests outside uh, police stations are following the arrests of, of activists. So I think, you know, some of those things you've, you've pointed out there give a real sense of the sort of the energy and the determination and the, the, the sort of fire that is burning in Thailand at the moment. And as I said, it doesn't come through clearly in a lot of the coverage outside of Thailand. I think it's um, worth looking at the general picture globally. And you actually see that um, the COVID-19 crisis has has sort of highlighted the inequalities and, and, and frustrations of people. So you, you get young people now coming out, not just in Thailand, but in other places, protesting against, you know, Black Lives Matter, protest, and previous to that, protesting against the um, climate crisis and so on. And um, I think what we're seeing here is something on a par with the 1968 uprising mm. around the world. Yeah, I think that's a really important point too. I agree there. Uh, you know, we're seeing it in, you know, I mean, the most obvious example of the last 18 months or so has been the amazing uh, ongoing defiance in Hong Kong. Uh, and I think when, I think there are lessons there uh, for all of us around the world, actually, that it, you can seem, when you look at the strength, for example, of the Thai state, you know, and you mentioned the, the extraterritorial assassinations that have been carried out uh, by the Thai, by, you know, by the Thai authorities of, of people living in exile. Uh, in, in the face of all that, it can seem like, and certainly a lot of bourgeois commentators would say that the pro-democracy movement can never win because the Thai state is sort of too strong. And I think, yeah, the lessons from places like Hong Kong, not I mean they're really up against it there, obviously, but but the lessons are that even in extreme circumstances mass resistance is possible and it's being proven uh, in, in spades in, in the last couple of years from Hong Kong to Belarus and of course the Middle East and North Africa. I think also that um, Belarus is very interesting because you see there um, mass movement um, with the participation of organised workers and I think that the participation of organised workers is very, very important mm. in terms of raising the the power of the movement, and that's something which we people will need to address, mm. whether it be in Hong Kong or Thailand or or other places. Well, on that note, I, I agree. That's a that's a vital question. So let's talk about that in relation to the struggle in Thailand. Uh, to what extent is there? I mean, I imagine there are you know trade unionists. A part of the protest, but to what extent are we seeing actions taken by organised workers, or are there people pushing in that direction? There are some people trying to organise it, and um, a rally was held yesterday um, by one 
trade union group um, with speakers and so on. It was it was modest in size, um, but it's a step forward. Um, there was also a pro-democracy rally organized by ordinary people, students and so on in the town of Ayutthaya, which is just north of Bangkok and has um, a number of factories in, in the region. And um, uh, workers from factories actually attended those rallies. And so it is vitally important that the um, more radical trade unionists actually try to organize action in workplaces and so on. Our mm-hmm. Let's go back a bit to uh, you talked about the uh, you know the sham elections of last year um, and the uh, future Forward Party. Um, so let's just dwell on that a bit. The the elections, as you say, brought to power the coup leader, the leader of the 2014 coup, uh, General Prayut. Uh, you know, if, you wouldn't have to be Einstein to look at that and say, "Well, this is a sham." Obviously, uh, but how do you characterize that in the long in the long view of what's been happening in Thailand over the last couple of decades? What was the significance of those elections? Well. I mean, if you if you take a longer view, you can see that um, Thailand has been in a political crisis since um, probably before two thousand and six. Two thousand is there were the, the the dispute that came to a head was between um, Thaksin Shinawat, who was who was elected um, on a huge majority um, and was repeatedly elected. Um, because he he offered the poor um, decent policies, including the universal health care system. He he was no socialist, but um, he he knew how to actually win votes from from the poor, and and this came to challenge the conservative elite within Thailand and the middle class and so on. And it came to a head with protests against. Thaksin, and then a military coup against him in um, 2006. Um, the thing about Thailand is that uh, military dictatorships find it difficult to just rule um, as dictatorships. There's a long history of, of protests in favor of democracy and so on. So eventually they have to hold elections. And and the the military junta that came to power in 2006 held a couple of elections and Thaksin's party won all of them. Um, uh, Although he was actually um, in exile abroad. Now, after the 2014 military coup, they knew that they had to change the rules for elections because they just carried on holding elections they would lose, so they, so they wrote the con- rewrote the constitution, appointed the Senate, made the Senate have the powers to vote alongside um, the, ha- the House of Commons with, um, in order to elect the, the, the prime minister, and then they disbarred a number of um, opposition parties. So they fixed it all. Um, they they planned it, and and. They're ruling with a, with a, with this false um, mask of democracy. It's a bit like in 
in neighboring Myanmar and Burma as well. Mm. Yeah. And then uh, you mentioned also then that the the main opposition party uh, last year that was dissolved at the start of this year, the Future Forward Party, uh, again, from a distance, it can seem like, well, this is just another sort of iteration of the Taksin style, Pure Thai style uh, opposition party that, that gets, you know, out, outlawed by the courts or dissolved or whatever. And I guess maybe there's some similarities there, but I also get the impression that there's some major differences, even by the fact that you mentioned that they describe them as the more radical party, though not radical enough. So could you maybe just expand briefly on how we should understand the Future Forward Party and what they represented? Well, it's now called the Gao Glai Party. Um, I'm not sure what the English translation is. Um, but basically, it's headed by a, a, a big businessman, um, Tanatan. Um, he is a little bit more radical in, in speech than, than Taksin Chinawat, although possibly not as, as, as astute as Taksin. They made attempts to, to, to pull in radical um, activists, for example, academics who favoured a welfare state and also groups of um, trade unionists. But what was clear was that the, the, these were just look at, um, the uh, icing on the cake, the, 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 the decorations around the party, because, you know, the party itself never proposed a full welfare state as, as its policy, but, but it let these academics argue that mm. that they were for a welfare state and the and the um workers um candidates the, the from the trade unions were were only one branch of the party and um in this period when there's more and more criticism of, of the monarchy they've been very careful to avoid criticizing the monarchy That's they it. haven't also they haven't um put all their energies into to building a mass movement on the streets. So they're still, you know, mm. uh, talking about parliamentary manoeuvres and see. so on. And, mm. and, and in that sense, they're being overtaken by the mass movement. Mm. And that's another, that's another dynamic we've seen repeated in, in some of the recent protests internationally as well, isn't it? So, and so then the, the protests, so that party is dissolved and as you say, is, you know, reborn and rebadged and the, the, the protests this year really sparked off around that same time. Uh, and since then, uh, you mentioned there'd been, you know, the big 50,000 people strong protest on August 16. Um, and there's been a, a series of demands that have been raised. Uh, in terms of the sort of organizational side of that, uh, I've picked up on in some of your articles, uh, you talk about a group called the Free People. Could you maybe explain for us who they are? It's the free people that organised the um, large protest on the um, 16th of August. And they're a sort of a, a broad group of young people, um, university students and other activists. Um, what's interesting is that they sort of have tried to um, keep a distance from those people that are advocating a reform of the monarchy. And, and that's, in a way, a, a, 
a, a bit of a shame. Mm. Um, on the other hand, the people that are advocating reform of the monarchy, um, there's a there's a danger that they will look at the monarchy as the only problem when we need to actually get rid of the military dictatorship. Um, but that's how that's the dynamics at the moment. Um, it's important that um, people don't break off into autonomous groups, which is which is one of the reasons why in the past the protest has been small, and that um, a united front um, is maintained and built and, and expanded. And I mean, of course, if you have a united front, then you're going to um, more radical people are going to have to uh, make compromises in terms of working with people who don't go want to go as far as them. And and I think that that's something that's very important. And I hope that they that people do that. It doesn't mean that you can't um, um, still make more radical demands, but you know you have to accept that you you're working within a majority group. One of the problems is that. Um, People have been standing up at um, protests. Well, it's a problem and it's not a problem. They've been standing up at protests and, and making radical demands, and then they've been faced with um, arrest. But I think it's important that people talk about what they're going to say on the on the platform and, and that, that, that there's some kind of collective policy, even if it's a collective policy of a section of, of the protests because there's a danger of, of of people being too individualistic. I mean, but but of course the good thing is that these people who have made these radical demands are pushing the 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 boundaries forward. So it's contradictory. Mm. Your analysis and commentary over the years has often made that point about uh, that, that it's wrong to ascribe kind of universal power or the way that some people do that. The king is this sort of unassailable, uh, omnipotent being who holds all the power in Thailand. And, and you've often made the point, well, actually, it's the military is the real is the real holder of power. But I think, you know, I, I, there's a lot in the way that you sort of worked through, I think, that those complexities and nuances there about, well, you know, we you need to be able to to push for you know freedom of speech and the right to criticize the monarchy and to advocate reform while also not taking our eye off the bigger picture about what the real what a real struggle for liberation in Thailand would look like and and who the real enemy is in a sense or who the main enemy is. You know, I think feel like there's a lot in there. Um, it's probably worth uh, just fleshing out some of that stuff about about your position in because it is it's not a common one. You know, most of the analysis that people read about Thailand from outside Thailand would say that that the king is the problem and that it needs to be a it needs to be a um, you know a parliamentary democracy and all you have to do is sort of abolish the monarchy or something and that would somehow fix things. And yet, yeah, as I say, you've always made the point that the military is what matters. And I wonder if you could flesh that out for us briefly. Um, the reason why a lot of articles in the foreign press um, emphasise the so-called power of the king is because um, they they interview cert a certain group of people who believe that it's not necessarily something that is 
um, believed by the vast majority of the Thai population, although it's very difficult to say. Um, the thing is that um, King Pumipon, who who is now dead and um, was never really a a courageous monarch, he never really had any power, and um, he hid behind those that did have power. Um, and the military and the elites used the monarchy, and they used the monarchy in order to emphasize um, the, the so-called legitimacy of, of, of class rule, of, of um, military rule, of the need for dictatorship at times and so on. The military really have only one legitimacy in stepping into, into politics, and that is that they claim to, to protect, protect the monarchy because the military can't have any democratic legitimacy. They can't have any legitimacy which claims that therefore they're um, in order to they're there in order to to reduce inequalities. I mean, you don't have a sort of group of young military officers who who want to change things like you might might have seen in in in, in Venezuela or other places. Um, so. There is this, uh, and, and the fact is that you, you couldn't criticize the monarchy without facing um, jail sentences. But, but, but the question that's now being raised on, on, on uh, in meeting in mass meetings and, and protests is that why, wh why hasn't the the monarchy in the past protected democracy? And I think that that's a that's a, a good question to ask because it challenges the legitimacy. Um, of the monarchy, um, uh, which is used by the military. Now, I mean, they, the military and the elites, including people like Taksin and, and big business, use the monarchy in an extreme way. But actually, if you look at the way monarchies are used in, in Britain and, and, and Western Europe, they, they're used to sort of enforce the ideology that, that we're not all born equal and that some people have the right to rule over others. Um, in Thailand, it's just an extreme form of this. Um, that, and that's something which I think that, that many Thais um, are yet to, to come to grips with, because some of the, what, many of the Thais that are criticizing the monarchy then um, praise the, the British monarchy and so on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we know what, what the British monarchy is like. Um, so basically, um, when King Pumipon died, his idiot son, his vicious idiot son, Wachialongon, came to the throne. And he doesn't really care two hoots about um, the politics of the country, the um, economic system, or anything. He just cares about his own lifestyle. And, you know, he's, he spends all his life uh, now living in Germany. Um, with a harem, um, comes to Thailand on, on day trips when, when it's absolutely necessary. Um, and he sort of made sure that uh, the, in, the constitution is, is changed so that he, he can amass all the wealth 
um, surrounding the monarchy under his personal control. Now, that's not the same thing as um, actually being in charge. Um, people say that he's also pulled some of the, the military um, behind him, but but actually, that's I think that that, that is just um, ceremonial. Um, the real people in charge of the military are the, are, are the generals. They're not going to cede power to this to this oaf um, easily when they're holding holding power themselves. And you know, it's it's impossible to think of a powerful dictator anywhere in the world who runs a country by living abroad. I mean, powerful dictators fear going abroad because when they go abroad, that they're going to be overthrown. So I think it, it's, it's complete um, nonsense to, to, to see the, the, the King Wataralongkorn as the most powerful person. It's the, um, it's the military that are in charge and they are the ones that are, are using the monarchy. And we have to overthrow the, the military dictatorship in order to, to change the monarchy. Personally, I would be in favor of a republic. Mm. I understand why activists in Thailand are saying they want to reform the monarchy for its own good because they are stepping ahead into unknown territory where they can't just stand up and say, we want a republic. But I think that, that there is no way of reforming the monarchy. And this, you certainly can't change the nature of the monarchy without overthrowing the military mm. dictatorship. Yeah, I think that's a really important uh, interconnection between the two to understand. Um, it's been a really useful and insightful discussion, Giles. Thank you. And I, I want to go back, you know, start to wrap up by going back to where we started, uh, which are those amazing scenes unfolding this week, you know, right now uh, in, across Thailand, uh, particularly those scenes of young people, uh, you know, really standing up to the, to the dictatorship, you know, putting up the three finger salute, all the rest of it. And that point you made about the young people today who are, in a sense have a, a certain courage that comes from not having been through the repression of earlier generations. I think that's a really important point. And uh, so maybe we can wrap up by, I guess, thinking, well, what are some of the lessons that that we need to draw or that activists in Thailand need to draw, you know, all of us in this struggle for human freedom, what are some of the lessons that we should draw from the last, you know, 15 year long struggle against the dictatorship in Thailand? Um, and what are the prospects for this? You know, where does it go? And, and um, yeah, what's the prospects, not just in the immediate sense of the struggle against, uh, you know, the struggle for democracy in Thailand, but in the broader sense, you know, how, how do we, how do we start to go from where we are and the struggle we're in today towards a, a vision of genuine socialism and, and how do we, yeah, how do we build on what's happening today? There's a lot in that question, but if you can, <laughs> sorry. In terms of, of learning the lessons, I think we need to go back further than 15 years. I think we need to look at the uprisings throughout the world, which started around uh, 1968, a, bit, a little bit before that, and the way that they spread around the world and and led to um, the defeat of the military dictatorship in Thailand in, in 1973. And, and it spread to all the Asian countries and, and Latin American countries and so on. And it spread out also with the defeat of the Vietnam War. So 
we need to to learn lessons from that about what the weaknesses were. Um, I mean, you look if you look at France, 1968, you can see the strength was actually um, the fact that um, a general strike took place, the biggest general strike in world history at that point, and that and that I mean pushed the the president to to run away and hide mm. in 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 the military barracks in Germany. But then what undermined it? You know, it was the the Communist Party in France that, that wanted that didn't want to go forward to, to revolution, but wanted to come to some kind of compromise. So got the unions to settle before the the, the students had, had won their demands and so on. So you know that one one issue here is that we we need to be very aware of, of those that try to to suggest compromises in order to to maintain the status quo and this is is something that that's quite obvious in Sudan or Lebanon and probably will appear in Belarus and Hong Kong and so on um and and we also need to make, and I mean, I, th I think the lesson about the, the involvement of the working class is very important. That, and that's how you actually bring about change. I mean, if, if you look at the red shirt movement in Thailand, they made the mistake of, of organizing long running protests where people would be camped out on the street night after night um, and people coming along to join it during the day and so on. And they didn't look towards the organized working class. And in the end, they, 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 the ruling class sent the troops in and, and, and shot them down. I mean, what is it that you, what kind of power is needed in order to make soldiers um, refuse to, the, to shoot protesters? And, and I think that one of, the, one of the things that you can see in Belarus is, is the organized working class get starts to 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 put pressure on the security forces and they wonder well you know do i really want to shoot my my brothers or whatever um those those are important things and and i think the final um lesson i think is that um we need political organization we need socialist organization unfortunately um there is no significant socialist organization in Thailand. I mean, I, myself and my comrades tried to build that, but it, it hasn't um, lasted up till now. Um, it's not too late to, to, to build it. Um, the purpose of a socialist organization is to actually link in various struggles, um, act as a bridge between students and workers, between, um, workers and LGBT activists between students and people um, fighting for, for demands for self-determination in Bhattani. I mean, there are individuals doing this, but it needs to be done on a more organized level. And, and that, that's, I think, is something that's very important. For the future, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, nobody does, but... Um, if the protests carry on, if they um, draw in organized workers, if they can cause a crisis at the top of the Thai ruling class, 
then there's a chance that um, the military dictatorship can be overthrown. But as soon as it's overthrown, huge questions will arise like, well, then what kind of society do you want? What kind of constitution do you want? And so on. And, you know, it's important that um, people don't allow the, the conservatives to propose compromises. That's the kind of thing that happened after the military were overthrown in 1973 in Thailand. So we have um, activists need to keep their eye on the ball, need to be talking about what what kind of society they want, what kind of constitution they want, and so on. And, and socialists should be arguing for a much more equal society, um, welfare state, and pushing the boundaries further than that as well. Okay. All right. Thanks again, Giles. It's been a really useful and informative discussion. Uh, if people would like to keep up to date with uh, the most important, I would say, the most important uh, revolutionary commentary on Thailand, uh, you can check out more of Giles' articles at on your blog, Ugly Truth Thailand. Um, we'll we'll wrap it up there. And um, and yeah, once again, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>